Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Alan Dean Foster. Alan is a writer of fantasy and science fiction who has written several book series and more than 130 standalone novels. Alan's works include Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the first Star Wars Expanded Universe novel, which was originally written to be filmed as a low-budget sequel to Star Wars if the original film was not a success. He also wrote the story for Star Trek, the motion picture. And as I said earlier, more than 130 standalone novels, including the Humanics Commonwealth novels, Ice Rigger Trilogy, and Spellsinger series. Alan's newest novel, Madranga, released November 2020 and is in stores now. And Alan is also a friend of the podcast and has appeared on the show a few times before. Alan, we are really excited to have you back on the show. How are you doing? Nice to be back, and I'm doing really well, all things considered. It's a tough time for a lot of folks, but we're managing pretty well where we are. I always ask, during quarantine, as you mentioned, it's affecting people. For writers, they live isolated lives. For you, have you been affected much on the writing side at all by quarantine? Has it affected you physically, mentally? I'm ashamed to say that it hasn't affected me at all. People say, how are you handling social distancing? And I have to say, well, I've been social distancing for 50 years. So I feel almost a little bit guilty in that way. The chemo affects me more than, you know, worrying about COVID does. But that's a whole other aspect of life that I don't need to get into. And even that doesn't affect my writing. It affects my going to the supermarket and buying food and taking cats to the vet. But as far as the writing goes, everything's pretty much normal. What about for those writers who are working on their works right now and maybe struggling with writer's block, feeling like they're lacking inspiration? Are there any words of wisdom you have for those who are out there trying to write during these times? Well, a lot of it depends on what you're writing. If you're writing nonfiction and you have to do real-world research and you have to get out in the world, it obviously makes it much more difficult. Anything of a repertorial nature or if you have to go to libraries or archives and do research that way, you're in a bad way. But if you're just writing fiction, you should be able to manage by working at home. When I started writing, there was no such thing as the internet or the web. And if you wanted to do any kind of research, you had to go to a library. Our local library will reopen tomorrow, literally. So I feel for people who have to do that. One thing about writing fantasy science fiction, is so much of it is invention comes out of your head and you can go online now you don't have to go to a physical library but for people who like to be around other people and find inspiration in that or as i often did in travel it's very difficult i wish i had a, a magic potion and said well take this and it'll it'll cure all your problems the only thing i can say is if you're missing human interaction Try to go online and, and try to uh, meet with people that way. You know, that's the best suggestion I can give is just don't sit there 
and stew over what you haven't got. There was a time when writers had to work with quilt pen and ink and blotters. So everybody now has access if they want to a computer, really have nothing to complain about. Are writers too hard on themselves when they're working on works right now? And like I said, maybe struggling to write. Is it a bad thing to switch over to a completely new work if they're, let's say, on a deadline? Is that a bad thing? Do you have suggestions on focusing on one thing? Are there any rules here? The only rule is there are no rules. Everybody works differently. I knew several writers who never had writer's block, never got depressed about what they were writing or felt that they weren't going to be able to finish it. But that's the exception rather than the rule. I think most writers, even successful writers, sooner or later will find a period where they just don't want to write, or they'll sit down to write and nothing will happen. And the only thing I can say is find some other way to break it other than switching to another piece of work. Because if you switch to another piece of work, and I can only speak for myself, unless it's a short piece, you're going to have trouble getting back into what you were doing in the first place. For example, if you're writing a novel, I think it's okay to break to write a piece of short fiction or a poem or a fact article. But if you wait too long to get back to the big work, it's going to be all that much more difficult to get back into it because so much of it resides in your mind. And if you don't constantly nurture it, it's going to fade a little bit. So sure, you need to take a break or get away from something and you want to do it by writing something else, particularly something short, go ahead and do it. But I certainly wouldn't advise switching back and forth between, say, two different novels or a novel and a nonfiction book. I think it's too much to keep track of. I'd love to talk about Madrango, which came out in November. It's out now. When did you actually write that? Because obviously there's a delay between when you finish a book, when it gets published. Was that during quarantine? Was that before? It was before quarantine. As you say, there was a substantial delay, particularly, obviously, if you're going to have a print edition as opposed to just online. So that was written a couple of years ago. I'm going to hop into the description of it for the context of the audience. Madranga, a vital message, a desperate queen, a hero in the making. He is plainly too young and too inexperienced for the mission, but on the advice of her aged advisor, Natum. With her husband off at war, the queen reluctantly assigns the task of delivery to Madranga. Accompanied only by a runt of a pony and a scrap of a pup, he sets off to transport the royal message to his destination, no matter what it might take. But things are not always what they seem. Heroes are sometimes made of the strangest stuff, and love is to be found in the most unexpected places if one doesn't die while treading the lethal path. I have a couple quotes. Rip-roaring action sequences and the mystery of Madranga's curious powers propel the story through a series of consistently surprising twists and turns. That's from Publishers Weekly. And then Alan Dean Foster's The Modern Day Renaissance Writer as his abilities seem to have no genre boundaries. That's from Book Browser. A couple more. One of the most consistently inventive and fertile writers of science fiction and fantasy. That's from The Times, London. And Foster's brisk and eventful novel should please any reader looking for quick and diverting adventure. And that's from Booklist. Those are awesome reviews. How do you feel when you get words spoken about your work? You've been writing for a while now. Someone says you're the modern day Renaissance writer. Do those things affect you anymore? Do you listen to reviews? How do they affect you? Do they inspire you? Anybody who says they don't listen to reviews is lying. I'm sorry, but I don't care who you are. 
or what your profession is. Everybody likes to be complimented. Nobody likes to be denigrated. I don't like bad reviews, but I will, I'll accept them if the reviewer justifies what they're saying. And that can include points of view on style or subject matter or plot that I don't agree with. The reviewer does. But sure, I like good reviews. Who doesn't like good reviews? The Renaissance man thing, I think, <laughs> that's very flattering. I think it's because I've written a lot of things besides fantasy and science fiction. I've written westerns and mysteries and nonfiction and poetry and reviews and columns and all, a lot of different things. So that's a favorite review of mine. I'm always pleased when a reviewer notes the fact that I've written other things besides fantasy and science fiction, even though that's what I'm best noted for. I will take as a particular little discovery something that a reviewer might point out where they say, either in a good review or a bad review or a neutral review, that I say, oh, that's right, I should have fixed that. Or he or she's probably right, I probably could have done that a little bit differently. But you don't usually see that. Once in a great while, you do. But usually reviewers, they don't go that deep into what they're reviewing, at least not for general review sources. If you're going to get a full-page review in the New York Times review books or something, you might find stuff like that. So, sure, I pay attention to reviews. But I'm always so busy that I have the benefit of being able to shrug them off because I don't have time to dwell on them because I'm working on something new. That's always helpful, by the way. If you get some bad reviews, just dive into what the next project is, and you'll find that those reviews from that other book or story fade from your mind. I would love to talk about the inception of this book and maybe use that to discuss in general how you come up with your ideas. And for those listening, maybe that might be some good advice for not just how you come up with the ideas, but how do you decide you want to commit to those ideas? Because obviously we talk about this a lot on the podcast. It takes a while to see them through. It takes years, sometimes months. For this book in particular, how did the idea come up? Especially you've written a lot already. So how are you finding your new ideas? And how are you committing to them? That's the wonderful thing about writing. You never know where an idea is going to come from. And you sit around sometimes and you try to find one. And lo and behold, it just springs forth. There is a plaque in the National Museum in Ankara in Turkey, which is a letter from the wife of... Ramses, Ramses II, we all know Ramses II, to the queen of the Hittites. And the content of that letter and the fact that it's thousands of years old is so contemporary, or struck me as so contemporary, the sort of thing that, you know, your girlfriend might write to her cousin in New York, let's say. Here's a similar sort of thing that's thousands and thousands of years old. And I thought, can that be the starting point for a story? And so I can point specifically to that ancient plaque in that museum as the genesis of Madrengan. And in addition to that, I had this idea where I don't want to give a book away, but I like character arcs that are not expected when you can do them. And if somebody starts out and they're going to be the obvious protagonist of the book and the obvious hero, I don't want to do Superman or Batman. It's, you know, this person does, uh, maybe doesn't want to be a hero, doesn't expect to be a hero, and turns out to be something more, not only than what we expected, but 
more than a hero, or shall we say, other than a hero. And the same holds true for his dog and his horse, which I thought was an interesting way of not only expanding the story, but expanding the character. Again, I don't want to give away too much of the plot or any of the surprises. And as I went through the book, these are the things that you as a writer really, really look forward to. About three quarters of the way through the book, something sprang out at me. It was totally out of left field. And I thought, I probably shouldn't put that in the book. It's probably too far out, probably too much of a, a break from the storyline. And then I thought to myself, well, that's exactly what you want to do. You do want to break from the storyline. You do want to surprise people. Because if you don't surprise people, then they might be generally pleased with what you've written, but they're never going to be surprised. And I like to be surprised when I'm reading a story. So I put that in there. It turned out to work quite well. I won't, again, say what it is exactly, but I guarantee you that anybody who reads the book will recognize exactly what I'm talking about when they hit that spot in the book. They'll know from the exact page. Love that. You mentioned ancient writing. These days, even since you were writing, let's say, in the 70s to now, even in that 30, 40-year period, writing has changed a lot. Storytelling has changed. And the way that audiences can understand writing and even film and TV. But how would you say storytelling's changed since that ancient writing in modern day? Have things at their core changed at all? You said that the story that you were inspired by was almost you know, universal to today. And also a lot of Star Wars stories are based on the hero's journey. Has storytelling over time really changed? I don't think storytelling per se has changed much at all since probably since the tale of Gilgamesh. People still are interested in a good story. They're interested in interesting characters. People have always written sequels. And the shaman who was sitting around the fire inside the cave while the saber tooths were howling outside probably was telling a similar sort of story to what most people tell today. What may have changed is the approach to the characters. Obviously, we have more female protagonists now than we've had for many hundreds of years. We have transgender, and we have characters who represent segments of society who would not have been telling stories or been principal characters in stories as recently as 50 or 60 years ago. That's changed. But the storytelling itself, a good story is still a good story. And I don't think that's changed for thousands of years, much less dozens or hundreds of years. Just to go back a little ways, you know, people talk, for example, about, well, what about writing for serialized TV or miniseries? And if you look at the works of Charles Dickens or Alexander Dumas, that's basically what they were doing. And if you were going to be published in segments, you had to, had to have an ending for each segment, or you tried to have an ending for each segment. People would hang out and wait for the next edition of the papers in London or wherever, where Dickens was serializing his novels. They're just like people today, and then they would discuss it around the Victorian equivalent of the water cooler. Nothing has changed from that time. If you're doing something from HBO or Showtime or Amazon or Apple or anyplace else, and you wait for the next episode and you sit around and discuss it, people have been doing that for a very, very long time. You basically said that storytelling has really changed. When you sit down to work on a new work, what are the core things you're thinking about? What are the high-level things you want to 
check off when you sit down and maybe outline and maybe think through the story before you actually sit down and write it? What are the things that are going through your mind when you are saying, okay, I want to have this hook or I want to have compelling characters? What are those core things, most important things you start working on before you get really granular and start writing? Is this the same old plot? Is this the plot of the book that I read last week or that I saw on TV last week? Okay, I'm going to go with this plot. How can I make it different? What parts of it, what individual parts of it can I make different that might make the readers sit up and take notice, whereas they might say, this is just what I read last week or saw on TV last week. The characters, what makes this character interesting? Is this really an interesting character? Do I really want to explore the arc of this character for 400 pages, or should I dump him or her and come up with somebody else? If not, how do I make this character interesting? What about this character? Because the characters to me are more important than the plot or anything else. And if the character doesn't interest the reader, the reader is not going to go any further. If you have a great character, like say, let's take two characters, Sherlock Holmes and Watson, then you can essentially get by by telling similar stories, not the same story, but similar stories over and over again. But the characters have to be enough to hold the reader all by themselves. So I work on developing particularly the principal characters right from the beginning, at least in my head, before I actually start putting words down. Because otherwise you have nothing. You just have people who move the plot forward. And that's not enough, no matter how good your plot is. I had somebody send me a book, self-published book. I get these frequently a few weeks ago. And the background was very interesting. It was very exotic. The plot looked interesting, not dramatic. But the main characters that I encountered in the beginning were flat and dull, and I had no image of them in my head as I was reading. Eventually, I stopped reading. I got another self-published book many years ago, which I've been trying to help the author get published for years, because I think it's much better than a lot of the stuff that gets published, had an exotic setting, had details that would not be familiar to most readers, but the characters were engaging. And if you have good, engaging characters, you can take them out of whatever plot you design for them and put them in another plot, and they'll be just as interesting for the reader. So always start with the characters first. And the one basic idea, as in the case of Madranga. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favourite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth podcast network, and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. 
And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickr and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. In regards to characters, when you are working on those characters and fleshing them out, those writers who are listening who are trying to really get in detail and find out you know, who these characters are, what are the questions you ask yourself? Do you have a template, name, age, height? How do you come up with the appropriate amount of time to really think through each character and get to know them to a point in which you can write from their perspective? I don't want to make too detailed a template either. I don't make one on paper or on the computer. But in my mind, I will get a few basic ideas together because I want to be able to discover the character as I write. Because I feel if I discover the character as I'm telling the story, then the reader will have the same response. They will get to know the character as the story is told. You have to be careful with characters and not throw out too much exposition at the beginning. Obviously, you have to establish the character to a certain extent, what the character looks like, how the character talks, perhaps, how they move. But you don't want to do all of that in the first four pages because, well, you're not getting into your story. And too much character exposition at the beginning is just like too much plot exposition at the beginning. It's just, as they say, an info dump. And that's something to beware of no matter where you are in your story. So I like to discover the characters as I go along, but I will have some general idea of them before I get going. For example, the book I just finished, the main character is a very large, very strong young man in his mid-twenties, but he's also very smart. So I thought, well, okay, this is interesting character, but it's not a unique character. How do I make this character a little more different? So you have a big, strong guy who usually gets hired or works for the fact that he's a big, strong guy, because that's what people see. He's actually very smart. So I gave him an interesting speech pattern. You can define a character by their speech pattern very quickly, whether you give them a Russian accent or French accent, or have them speak without articles like A and V. There's lots of ways to do that. Anything to hit the reader with the fact that this person is different from the person I probably know down the street. Assuming the person down the street isn't a big, smart, you know, big, strong, smart guy who speaks with a funny accent. I'll give a perfect, really good example. If people want to see how to define a character, in film at least, just saw a film called The Phantom Thread, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, who manages to define character no matter which film he's in. He says this is going to be his last film. Let's hope not. But this is not, on the face of it, a particularly interesting character. He's a dressmaker. It's a British dressmaker. Now, off the top of your head, that's not Conan. That's not a U.S. president. He's a dressmaker. But Lewis imbues the character with so many distinctive, and so does the screenwriter, obviously, so many distinctive mannerisms, little bitty things here and there. It's the sort of thing that Robert Heinlein used to do with his backgrounds. Little details that make a world come alive. The little details can make a character come alive as well. And you might think, you have to take your time with this. If your character starts out, let's say, having breakfast, is there some distinctive way that he or she holds the teacup? 
Are they picky about the way they have their tea? Are they sloppy? Do they drink their tea out of a cup with a straw? Do they always drink it out, you know, drink what's left over off the saucer? There are so many little ways you can define your character and also make them different. And you have to pay attention to those details. I don't do all of that to get back to your question. I don't do all of that right at the beginning. I discover those things as I'm going through the story. Love that. The last question I have in regards to the book, you mentioned earlier that when you set out to write it, you want to make it different than your previous books. For those listening and for those interested in checking out the book, how would you say for those who are maybe thinking, oh, maybe I should pick this up, check it out, what's different about it? What would you say? I imagine every time you write a book, you're trying to make it, like you said, different. What are you happy about coming out of this book that makes it different from the rest? Without giving it away, of course, the three main characters are the young man that you mentioned, the pony that you mentioned, the dog that you mentioned. They're not just the person. And I felt that the interaction between those three, and there's no anthropomorphism involved here, the horse is actually a horse, the dog is actually a dog, but they all experience some of the same things that their human companion does. I thought that would make it a little different and much more interesting to see the horse and the dog evolve, if you will, in the course of the story, instead of just the human. I could have written exactly the same book and had this character have a normal horse and a normal dog. But I thought, how much more interesting if all three of them change throughout the course of the book, instead of just the person. And no, they don't talk to each other. As I say, it's a horse and a dog. There is then this young man's journey of discovery, if you will, not just the task that he's entrusted with, carrying this message from his queen to another land. It's what he discovers about himself, but in ways, hopefully, that will surprise the reader throughout the book. I would also love to talk about Star Wars. Obviously, everyone, when they hear your name, they associate Star Wars, of course. And I'm sure you get tons of Star Wars questions. So I'd love to save a little time for some Star Wars questions. So that being said, are you still working on Star Wars projects? I'm sure you get this question a lot. Is there anything on the horizon? How do you get those gigs? What's your current situation? Or can you talk about it? Can you not talk about it? Sure. As people may know, or maybe they don't, I've been writing book versions of films, novelizations for a very long time. And after the first one, it just kind of snowballed. It wasn't something I sought out. These were projects that were offered to me, not all of which I accepted, but many of which obviously I did. I was there at the beginning with Star Wars, of course, novelizing the first film and doing Splinter, which you mentioned. Subsequent to that, I wrote a bridge novel between episodes three and four called The Approaching Storm, one of two such novels. And then I did the novelization of episode seven, The Force Awakens. The funny thing is, or maybe it's not funny, if you know Hollywood, it's not funny, is that after doing all of these novelizations over all of these years and having a master's in film writing, nobody ever asks me to write a film. Well, that's not entirely true. I get asked, but nobody wants to pay anything. These are usually beginning projects, and people know my work, and they say, are you interested in doing this? So I've done a number of unfilmed screenplays, some of which have been paid for over the years. But 
None of them, to answer your question, have involved Star Wars. It's very difficult to participate in the motion picture industry if you don't circulate in the motion picture industry, which requires living, say, in Los Angeles. It's difficult to get into country music if you don't live and circulate in Nashville or Austin. It's difficult to get on the stage if you don't see where I'm going with this, New York or Los Angeles or London. You have to be there. You have to talk to people. You have to be around people. You have to throw ideas around. Yes, you can do that via Zoom and other means on the net, but it's not the same thing as interpersonal contact. And I choose to live in Prescott, Arizona, and not in Los Angeles. I did write a treatment, the story for one major film, you mentioned the first Star Trek movie, and I just didn't care for what was necessary to be done on a personal level. I don't like that sort of thing. I can do it. Let's call it professional schmoozing. But it's not something I really wanted to spend a lot of my life on. What I wanted to do was travel and write, and I've managed to do both of those things. So it's not necessary for me to see my name on the screen. Sure, it's nice, but it's not necessary. Everybody's different. As far as me doing anything for Star Wars in the future, I think after the, well, my commentary, let's say, on episode eight, which I called a terrible film, because it is a terrible film. I don't think anybody's going to be rushing out from the related parties to ask me to write any films in the Star Wars universe or books or anything else. But you never know. You never know. Regimes change. Attitudes change. There is something to be said for speaking your mind and always telling the truth when you are involved in a story conference or reviewing something. And sometimes that counts for something in the motion picture business. Sometimes it doesn't. If you were to potentially work on a Star Wars project in the future, I'm sure you get this question a lot. Your opinion, what is one story that's maybe never been told in the Star Wars universe that you would love to tell? Oh, Maz Kanata. That's easy. Of course, I don't know what's been done. This tree has a thousand branches, the Star Wars tree. And I don't keep up with every new branch. So for all I know, there's a trilogy out there detailing the whole history and story of Maz Kanata that I'm completely unaware of. And 16 fans will immediately call you and say, hey, he never heard of this. What's going on? But assuming that that hasn't been done, I think that would be an interesting viewpoint. And it would also be interesting to do a Star Wars film that doesn't center on a human character. Now, whether Hollywood's ready for that or not, I don't know. E.T. is not the sort of film I'm talking about. And I don't mean that this character must not ask to be on screen at all times, but it would be a very interesting character arc to explore. That's because that's the question you ask. That's a character I'd like to see developed more fully. There's all kinds of directions you could go with that. What I would actually do is start something completely new because this works for Star Wars. It's worked very well with The Mandalorian. And there's no reason why you couldn't have an entire other series taking off from Star Wars that doesn't involve the Mandalorian and doesn't involve Baby Yodas and goes in a different direction, but is still Star Wars. But I'm not going to sit around and wait for the phone call. Tell us about the Mandalorian. Do you watch Mandalorian? Are you a fan of the Mandalorian? What are your thoughts on the Mandalorian? Does it hold true to some of the spirit of what George first came up with? Don't watch it. I don't watch a lot of television. I don't have time. I have 
real life responsibilities that take me away from doing that. And frankly, I would rather be writing a book or a symphony than sitting around watching television. That's not a knock on it for people who want to do it. I realize that many more people than myself have time for that, but I just don't feel that I have the time to do that much anymore. So it's not the Mandalorian particularly, it's just television in general. I've asked this question to some other writers we've interviewed who have worked on Star Wars before. Did you ever expect the Boba Fett character to inspire stories either based on people who wear Mandalorian armor or Mandalorians themselves and for it to result in a show like The Mandalorian and for it to become such a pop culture icon and source of new stories? No, I never expected it. Never expected it. It's just a background character. But that's what happens when your franchise continues to grow and blossom. You start looking for things you can expand upon. I was asked to write a short story or a collection of Star Wars short stories. And I did that. And the character they gave me, or it wasn't really a character, it was an image, was this, well, this person who's called Grumgar, who is simply a large alien who shows up in Maz Kanata's castle. That was it. That's your character. Here's the image. It's what it looks like. Go write a story about it, which was great from my point of view. From the writer's point of view, I was able to develop that personage in the way that I wanted to. So I made him a big game hunter, and I gave him eventually, well, I don't want to give the story away. but So you can do that sort of thing with anything that shows up. When I did The Approaching Storm, I was presented with two characters, Luminara and Duli and Barasulfi, and there was a line from the preceding film, there's trouble in this planet, uh, go check it out. And from that, an entire novel sprang, in which I got to do some interesting Star Wars-y things. You hope you get that kind of freedom. So it's possible to take anything within the Star Wars universe. I mean, you might find a mechanic who worked on Luke's land speeder, who's still sitting around on Tatooine, who isn't what he seems, or isn't what she seems, or what it seems. You see how this works. If you have an imaginative writer and somebody who's familiar with whatever franchise or background you're talking about, good writers should be able to get a story out of anything. Love that. Perhaps we can do another episode at some point where we workshop a story about that Luke's <laughs> land speeder repairman <laughs> or repair woman. You mentioned that people don't approach you as much about writing scripts. But what about the IP that you have in your arsenal, so to speak? You've written so many books. You said 130. Do producers reach out to you a lot for your IP? Are there people trying to mine or interested in the Alan Dean Foster verse, so to speak, and adapting that into TV and film? Bits and pieces. There was a show on the Science Fiction Channel, Welcome to Paradox, which ran briefly. A story of mine called Our Lady of the Machine was the opening episode. They wouldn't ask me to do the screenplay or the teleplay, of course, because that's not the way it works. But there was that. I have an original screenplay written with another writer, J. Nathaniel Burke, called Olympus, which is about the first colony on Mars, which was essentially sold, but as these things go, it changed. It was supposed to be all shot in China. We'll see if anything happens with that. As far as earlier stories of mine, I did have to sue a major studio once. The only time I've ever sued anybody in my life, not even for dog barking. 
because a book of mine was plagiarized. And the plagiarism was so obvious that the law firm I engaged in Los Angeles to represent me took the case on a contingency basis. In other words, they were so confident in the plagiarism aspect that they didn't even ask for any money up front. That was eventually settled before it went to court, which was necessary for me because of family health reasons and useful for the studio involved. So in that respect, yeah, I've had stuff dealt with in film. And I've sold screenplays that haven't gone anywhere, even though they've been paid for, been involved with several other projects. But again, it's extremely difficult to do any of this stuff if you're not physically around the industry. You can't work for Minneapolis, let's say, and really hope to make yourself known in the film industry. It's just not how it works. You're better off being a parking attendant at Nate Niles or Spago. You have a much better chance of meeting somebody who might be interested in your story or your script. That necessarily shouldn't be the way it is, but that is the way it is. My next final two questions I've asked you before, but it's been a while, maybe a few years. The first one is, if you could choose any writer to take to any restaurant, which writer would you choose, which restaurant, and why? Living or dead? Either. Dead, I'd like to take George Amato. George Amato was, I believe, and many other people believe, Brazil's greatest writer. Should have gotten a Nobel Prize. Did not, probably because he was a raging socialist, but I don't know that. A wonderful, earthy, beautifully expressive writer created wonderful characters and made you feel like you were there, not just with the characters, but in Brazil. And there's so many questions. Brazil is a wonderful country, and I've seen a fair piece of it, but there's so much I haven't seen. It's a huge place. Love to sit down and talk to Amado about Brazil, and particularly the Brazil he was growing up in. As far as living writers, you know, I can't think of anybody offhand. I guess that's a poor reflection on me. One of the most interesting modern writers I know is Nettie Okorafor, and I've talked to her plenty of times, so <laughs> we don't need to make it a special occasion to communicate. But I'm sure there are writers in Russia and Kenya and Peru and places that I don't know that I haven't been able to explore that I would love. I would enjoy sitting down and talking to any of them. I like to get out of my comfort zone. Love that. The last question, I've asked you this maybe a couple times before, but perhaps you'll have an updated answer. I believe your answer last time was write one page every day, try to write every day. And the question is, what's the one thing you would say to writers? Is there one thing that you would choose to say? Could be that one. Could be something else. No, it's that one. I mean, I think that's the key. If you work on something every day, no matter what it is, you're going to get better at it. Or you're going to get sick of it and do something else where you work on it every day. But if you're writing, if you're trying to write a book or a short story or whatever, write at least one page every day. And before you know it, you'll have a short story. And at the end of the year, you'll have a novel, even if that's all you do. But you have to work at it every day. Great pianists, the greatest pianists like Vladimir Horowitz and Arthur Rubinstein, they all practiced every day for their entire lives. They didn't have to. You get up in your 60s and your 70s and you're going to play a couple of pieces that you've played hundreds of times before. Still practice every day. And you do that by writing every day. Love that. Madrenga is in stores now. Came out in November 2020 and now it's out. If you're listening, please check it out. Before you go, Alan, did you want to plug anything? 
you also wrote a symphonic poem. Did you want to plug that? Did you want to plug anything else? No, let's have people take a look at Madrang if they're interested. No, there is one other thing. Since we've talked so much about book adaptations of films, and I do get asked questions about that a lot, I finally decided it was probably time to get it all down so that if something happened to me, stories would still be around. So there's a book coming out in April from Centipede Press called The Director Should Have Shot You, which details my entire history of working with novelizations from the very first one, the one in 1973, right up to and including the last one, which was Alien Covenant. So if people have any more questions that we didn't get to talk about, about what it was like to work on Star Wars, or the Chronicles of Riddick, or the first three Alien films, or anything else that I've done the book version of the film, there's your answers. They're all there as best as I could remember them in that book. We would love to have you back on to discuss that book. Assuming the book comes out on time, <laughs> you bet. Alan, always a pleasure for us to talk to you. Seriously, an honor. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thanks again. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.